Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for our daily lives? What does it mean for tomorrow? For what you're going to be doing tomorrow? What does it mean that Christ is risen? What does it mean for the world? What is Christianity for? What's the purpose of Christianity? Well, the inalterable fact that Christ has risen from the dead means that everything sad is going to come untrue. Through the cross and the resurrection, God has defeated evil and he's opened the door to new creation. And God asks us to respond to this, the Easter fact, by believing that it's true and joining him in his work of implementing the victory. Joining him in his work of making everything sad come untrue. Christianity is for the life of the world. The work of God in Christ on his cross and in his resurrection is for all the world. It's for whole societies, not just for individuals. And God is calling us to join him in this worldwide, creation-wide Easter work. So we've got to resist all the truncated forms of Christianity that lead us to withdraw from society so that we can just wait on our evacuation out of this broken place. No, we've got to resist reducing the cross and the resurrection and shrinking Christ into some Christian ghetto. Now, over the last several weeks, we've seen how the work of Christ leads Christians out of the ghetto. How the work of Christ in how the work of God in Christ invites us and empowers us to participate with God in his work of making everything sad come untrue. He invites us to labor with him for the flourishing of our communities through our work, our jobs, through our families, through our efforts for justice. And this morning we're going to see a fourth way. So we've identified over the last several weeks three ways Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection leads us into the world to join with God in working for the renewal of all things. Through our families, through our work, and through laboring for justice. That's been the last three weeks. Now today we're going to identify another one of the essential, fundamental, primary ways we go with God in his work. Not only through families, not only through jobs, not only through justice, but through knowledge. Now, I'm putting it this way because I want you to realize that I am lifting knowledge way up there. I mean, if you were writing this series, the fundamental ways that we join God in his work in the world, maybe it would have come to you to think of justice, family, labor. But would you have thought of knowledge? As a fundamental, primary way we join with God? Would you have linked knowledge as one of the basic ways the cross moves into the world? Now, there are two primary, there are two parts to my sermon this morning. First of all, how? How does knowledge help us join God in his work for the life of the world? In other words, what is the purpose of knowledge? And then the second part of the sermon will be how do we go about acquiring genuine knowledge, truth, real insight into God's world. 
First of all, how does knowledge fit into God's Easter work? Why is knowledge here as the fourth way in which we join God in his Easter work? In other words, what is the purpose of knowledge? Think about it this way. What's the point of school? Of education? Well, we would probably all say to learn things. But why? Why do we spend so much time from kindergarten on, day after day? Student, kids, why are your parents making you go to school? Why suddenly do they tell you, no, you can't go outside and play anymore. You have to go to school for 13 more years. Why? Why do we do this? And if you choose private school or homeschooling, it's a lot of money. Why so much money? Why such a significant percentage of our time and our resources? Why? Look, if you can't connect this up to the cross, then a huge aspect of your life, you've just separated from the cross. Do you see what I'm saying? A couple of weeks ago, I said, you've got to connect your job to the cross. Now I'm saying there's this other huge thing in our life. It's called education. We've got to connect it up to Christ. Now, how does that fit? What is the overall purpose of learning things, of knowledge? Is it so that you can get a nice house and have 2.5 kids? Well, sort of. Part of the reason that children, your parents make you go to school, part of the reason that you spend 13 years in school, maybe some of you, or even more, some of you, part of the reason is so that you can gain the insight and skills you need to care for yourself and for those of you who want to get married. If God calls you to marriage, if you decide you want to do that, you don't have to, so that you can provide for your family. Part of the reason for going to school, for gaining knowledge, is so that you can develop the ability to earn a living and to care for your needs. And beyond that, so you can play a positive and productive role in society. But that's not all. Remember the passage of Scripture that we all listened to at the very beginning of the service. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophet. This is the center of the Christian tradition. This is right at the center. If you've been around our church for very long, you know that buried within these two commands is a third aspect, a third dimension, the whole realm of creation. So we can summarize the fundamental obligations that God has given to humans as this. Each of us is not to be the center of our own concerns, but we are to center Our lives, our concerns, were created by God to center our lives, not around ourselves, but around Him. That He's the the deep gravitational center around which our whole life bends. That we are to center our concerns around loving and serving God and to love our neighbors and To be responsible stewards of nature. Now at the center of the Christian tradition is that these are the three obligations for humans. We were created by God to love God with all of our ways. 
to love our neighbors and to be responsible stewards of nature. This threefold task is what God made humans for. And when we do this, when we serve and love God, when we love and serve our neighbors, and when we love and serve nature, we participate with God in his work of renewal, of beauty, of truth, of justice, of delight, of making everything sad come untrue. If learning is not for that, it is idolatrous. If knowledge does not connect up to the reason for which we're made, then we have made an idol out of learning. See, it must connect up to that. The purpose of knowledge, of education, it has to be for the life of the world. It has to be for shalom, for renewal. It's through our knowledge that we love God better, love our neighbors better, and steward nature better. Now that's very simple. And that's the gist of it. Knowledge is for our purpose. And our purpose is to love God, love neighbors, and steward creation. Now let's drill down into this. First of all, knowledge is a fundamental way that we become our true selves. God made us to wonder. We're wondering creatures. Have you noticed that if you send a child... From the front yard to the backyard to get something, they may or may not make it back. (laughs) Why? They wonder both zero, uh, O, and an A. We are wondering creatures and we are unfulfilled until our wonder finds fulfillment in knowledge. That's what it, the way God made us. Understanding, comprehension, knowledge. This is fundamental to fulfilling our God-given nature. True, genuine knowledge. This is a fundamental way in which we experience the shalom of God in our own lives. Where knowledge is absent, life withers. You see, knowledge unleashes human potential. But, and this is key, knowledge is not merely an instrument for power, the power to mold your circumstances to your own liking, or for self-improvement, or for personal benefits like money or respect or admiration. In fact, if you stop there, then something is completely wrong. Second, learning and knowledge is a fundamental avenue through which we love God better. Think about what genuine knowledge is. This is how I define it. It's true insight into some aspect of this world God made. Last week we were blessed by Aaron sharing his knowledge, his genuine insight into the subject of justice. His genuine insight into the subject of justice as it relates to the criminal justice system. So knowledge is about seeing. It's about seeing into a particular Subject. So pursuing knowledge is not an exercise in pride. It's a duty that God has laid upon us. God's honor 
requires us to probe the complexity of what he's made, what he's created, so that we can discover God's majesty, God's wisdom, God's order, God's thumbprint, his handiwork, his beauty, to discover the treasures that he's buried in his world. Now, let me just stop there and ask you a question. Do you eagerly and creatively explore God's creation? Those of you who love math, do you eagerly and creatively explore the demonic realm? I mean, the realm of mathematics. I don't know where that came from. You see, the more you know about God's creation, the more you know about God. The more you can love God. The more you can love the true God. And this leads us to the third way in which knowledge helps us to love better. Not only does it help us know ourselves and love ourselves better. Not only does it help us to love God better. It helps us to love others better. Genuine knowledge is an antidote to the poison of sin. Right? The biblical story tells us that sin has shattered this world. Every square inch of this world. But genuine knowledge is an antidote. It's a resistance to that. Through Aaron's knowledge of law, he can fight injustice. Through Paul Yoder's knowledge of medicine, he can fight sickness and disease. Right? That's easy to see, isn't it? How genuine knowledge into the human body, biological, chemical, whatever, helps us fight disease. But you can extend this into every area. Think about Anita Cooper, one of the great artists in our church. Think about how her knowledge of art helps us recover humanity by helping us to imagine better. That's the central role of art. Think about how Paula's knowledge of young adult sexuality enables her to fight for wholeness among college students. Through Courtney's incredible knowledge of home decorating, of color and texture and furniture, Courtney can fight chaos by creating home environments where beauty thrives and creativity flourishes. If God doesn't care about home decorating, then what do you do with the beauty of this world God made? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how you can link up every knowledge that you can use all of your knowledge as fighting with God for the flourishing of society? Now, again, this is a reason for art on the front of our worship God. Do you see your knowledge not as a gift to you, but as a gift you bring to the world? Are you generous or are you stingy? The specialized knowledge that you have spent all of the money that God allowed you to spend and so much of the time that God gave you, do you take all of that that God enabled you to acquire? Do you take it and then hoard it? Have you seen The Hobbit? Do you know what hoarding does? Bunch of dragons? No. See, our job, we've got to start looking at our knowledge as a gift God has given us to give generously to the world for the life of the world. The generous and helpful sharing of knowledge is one of the most basic and important ways that we love our neighbors as ourselves. 
So what is the purpose of knowledge? Well, it's through pursuing and acquiring knowledge that we love God better. And it's through generous gifting of our knowledge that we, other, that we love others better. And we love God's world better. What do you use your knowledge for? Are you stingy? Or do you share? How might you use your God-given insights to bless this community? We exist for the glory of God and the good of our city. Don't take this thing you've spent all of your years acquiring and, and fracture it out of your fundamental purpose. How might we use our God-given insight to bless our neighbors? How can you use your gifts and knowledge to bless the community in which you live? If we use our gifts to the fullest potential in service to others, how would this affect our community? Now that's the end of the first part of the sermon this morning. Just trying to get us all to see that knowledge is the way we love. The purpose of knowledge is love. To love God, to love others, and to love his creation. That's all I'm trying to get at in the first part. Now for the second part of the sermon, I want to ask the question. Okay, if knowledge is a fundamental way that we fulfill our essence, our our fundamental task, which is to love God and to love others and be responsible stewards, then we've got to ask the next question. Well, then how do I get it? How do I get true insight? If it's that important, if it's that deeply organically related to our purpose for existence, then how do we acquire true knowledge? Well, let me say, this is a question that the Bible is very concerned with. How do we acquire knowledge? In fact, if you've read the Bible, you might know that right at the beginning, the breaking of the world occurs through the inappropriate acquisition of knowledge. Not through the inappropriate, not through gaining inappropriate knowledge, but through inappropriately gaining true knowledge. The perennial temptation is to put the knowledge of good and evil before the knowledge of God. It wasn't that God never wanted Adam and Eve to taste of the fruit of good and e- of the knowledge of good and evil. It's that they needed to learn first the knowledge of God. The heart of the story of Adam and Eve is this issue. How do you go about acquiring true and genuine insight into this world? And the snake said to Adam and Eve, you don't need God for that. And in that moment, everything broke. The acquisition of knowledge is at the center of the story of the Bible. So there's a lot going on here, much more than we're going to go into. I just want you to see this point that the Bible is not only concerned with how you use your knowledge, it is concerned with how you acquire knowledge. As you read the Bible, I think there are two basic convictions about how we should acquire knowledge. Number one, humility. If you have your Bible, turn to sort of in the middle, find Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. How do we gain true and genuine knowledge? We start with humility. 
Look at Proverbs chapter 1. If you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. Look at verse, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb, a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The purpose of the book of Proverbs is to gain knowledge. That's the purpose. That's what those first six verses say. Here's the reason this book is written. It's so that you can know wisdom and instruction and understanding and insight. Now, look at chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Hear, my son, and accept my words. Look at verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Do you see that all of these put the learner in the posture of humility? Receive, listen. Stop thinking about what you think and listen to what I know and receive it. Do you see that the posture of the learner demands humility? Look at chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment. Your father's knowledge. Your father's insight. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words. Not your words. Not what you think. You need to learn from your teacher, who's your father in this book, Look at chapter 7, verse 24. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to my words. Teachers, professors, don't you want to say this to your students? Don't you want to say to them, listen, I've spent my whole life in this subject. You don't know Jack. I remember there was this episode of ER years ago. Um, these, you know, medical doctors had graduated medical school, which probably meant they all graduated valedictorian of their class and they, you know, worked really hard and learned a whole lot. And then they all start the residency, right? They've already been through med school. They've already got a doctorate, right? And they start their residency. And one of the like, uh, what's the leader of a residency? I don't know that. The re- I don't know. The, the head doctor, he's walking around with the residents. And he asked one of them a question about something. And the resident says, well, I think blah, 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 blah. And the, and the head doctor looks at the resident and said, oh, wait, you're confused. Your job is not to think. You don't know how to think. You don't know what to think. Your job is to tell me what I think. And it's exactly right. Knowledge must begin in humility. 
I mean, this is really easy to think out. I mean, how does a person learn how to play the violin? You know, Spencer took violin from Jesse. And what did Jesse say? She said, sit like this, hold your back up straight, hold your violin like... What if Spencer had gone in there saying, no, I'm going to do this the way I want to? You know? Now, can one day Spencer get to the place where she changes Jesse's technique? Yeah, but that is years down the road. How do you learn how to play golf? You hack your way through it or you get a teacher. How do you learn how to hold a tennis racket? How do you learn how to paint? You apprentice yourself. You place yourself in the, in the, in the humble posture and the teacher says, listen to me. Receive my words. Genuine insight must start in humility. Now, here's the, here's the weird issue. This is exactly the opposite of what our Western culture is telling us. Over the last 500 years, our Western culture has decided you get knowledge in a different way. Four primary paths, four primary ways to gain knowledge in the last 500 years. Rationalism, empiricism, idealism, and romanticism. Now, if you want to learn about all those, I post my manuscripts of my sermons online and there's footnotes where I flesh them out. But we don't have time for that this morning. Here's what you need to know. What you need to know is that all four of these approaches were developed within the framework of the Enlightenment. And in its essence, the Enlightenment, in the words of Immanuel Kant, is man's exodus from tutelage. That's how Kant named the Enlightenment. It is freedom from a master. It is, it is our exodus from our own inability to use our own understanding without the guidance of another person. So the motto of the Enlightenment, again in the words of Kant, have the courage to use your own understanding. Now whether you've ever heard that or not, we are awash in that. So there was this fish. He heard report of water. He wanted to find water. He wanted to know what water was. So he swam all over. He started in Australia, went all over the oceans, found all the oceans, years and years doing this. Finally comes back home, tells his dad, well, I've been everywhere. I just can't find this stuff. Water, swimming in it. Look, we are so awash in autonomy when it comes to gaining knowledge that we don't realize with Descartes, 500 years ago, a shift was made in our culture that is profoundly atheistic, profoundly unchristian. Now, what does that have to do with us? For the last four or 500 years, for half a millennium, Western society has said that the way we gain knowledge is not through humility, but through autonomy, pride. I'm going to doubt it until I find certainty. But the Christian path is faith-seeking understanding. Now, teachers, you know this doesn't work. If a student sits in your class and just crosses his arms with a bad attitude and refuses to believe that you know anything, that student will hear nothing but the own repetition of their own ignorance. This is what Proverbs says over and over. Parents, one of the most important things you can do is look at your, children's in the eye, your children in the eye and say to them, your job is to listen to me. Don't play this false card of I learn more from you than you learn from me. No. If that's true, let them run the account. Let them pay the bills. 
Let them decide when you eat and when you play. Now, that's, that's insane. And when your children are resisting you, you need to look them in the eye and say, your soul right now hangs in the balance on if you will acquire the position of humility. And the way, I, the way you learn that is from your mom and dad, by humbling yourself. Parents, when your children disobey, their soul is on the line. Don't let them get away with that. Meet it head on. Do not allow your children to go through life resisting learning through humility. Don't let them assign their own selves to the prison of empiricism that the only way they're going to ever learn anything is by learning it themselves without any authority. You are damning them to hell if you do that. Your job is to be the authority. This is fundamental. This is where the Bible starts. It starts with learning through meekness. Now, second. So the first way we gain true and genuine knowledge is through the virtue of humility. And the second way is by following the Christ clue. Following the Christ clue. This is our passage from Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I suspect that for some of us, this might be actually the most controversial thing I say today. Let me start by saying what I do not mean. I do not mean that you have to believe in Christ to... Did you hear that? That's my speech impediment. Christ. I used to say Boyd in Twee. Only every now and then now. I do not mean that you have to believe in Christ to acquire genuine knowledge. That's obviously wrong. The names of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and many, many great thinkers and teachers and practitioners in the fields of engineering and science and business and astronomy and botany and education and physics prove this wrong. We live in the midst of the rich blossoming of knowledge in all spheres, often led by non-Christians. So I, I don't mean that. What do I mean by saying that to gain true and genuine knowledge, we must follow the clue of Christ? I mean that Christ is the clue to the whole creation. Now, this gives us both confidence and humility. Confidence. Christ is the clue. He really is. Humility. He's the clue. There's a lot of things we need to know that the Bible doesn't say anything about. There's a lot of challenges that people in this room are facing right now for which you cannot turn to the Bible and find an answer. But that doesn't mean the Bible and Christ has nothing to do with it. It means you need to stop looking at the Bible as an answer book to everything and look at it like a flashlight. See, the Bible is a light. Christ is a light. He shines the way. This is what it says in Colossians 2, 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures. They're hidden. Takes work. This is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Where it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And in the beginning, He was God. All things were made through Him and by Him. Without Him was nothing made. Listen to this. In Him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. You need to think of Christ as a light that shines. He's the flashlight. He's the clue. 
And in our search for knowledge, recognizing Christ as the clue, this gives us confidence. Christ really is. In humility, he's a clue. We've got to pursue the clue with all of the rigor and all of the intelligence and all of the hard work and self-discipline that we can muster. If you want true, genuine knowledge, you've got to consciously look at your field through a Christian lens. Now, now let me show you what I mean by that. Let's, let's, let's talk about Phil for a minute. Because he loves that. <laughs> Do you know that he's a psychologist? He's actually Dr. Phil. Did you know that? And doesn't he look like Dr. Phil? Let's take psychology because as far as I can tell, um, the largest number of people in in any given vocation in our church is homemaking. And the second largest, most populated vocation in our church is mental health care, psychology, therapy, social work. Let me show you what I mean in the field of psychology by following the Christ clue. Take behaviorism, for example. The theory of behaviorism promotes a naturalistic reductionism that does not account for the rich complexity of human life, of human functioning. So a Christian therapist, while perhaps finding many much rich insight into human behavior from behaviorism must still sort out the true insights from the, from the deterministic worldview which absolves humans of responsibility. See, if you follow behaviorism too far, humans no longer have innate responsibility for which they are accountable. So you must follow the Christ clue. Another example in psychology, a theory of rape counseling. Now, a friend of mine says this. I think he's right on the money. Clearly, this is a very important body of knowledge our society needs to develop. And if it's done well, it will bring tremendous healing to society. Now, of course, there is no theory of rape counseling in the Bible. Read it cover to cover. The Bible's not going to tell psychologists and therapists how to handle this. But that doesn't mean Christ is not a flashlight on the subject. That scripture doesn't have anything to offer. You see, we've got to learn to see that in scripture, there is a particular understanding of what it means to be human. And that perspective needs to be taken seriously in the development of any counseling theory. What is a human? What's a whole human? What are we aiming for here when we counsel such victims? In other words, any Christian theory of this type of counseling must be informed by a scriptural anthropology. And of course, there's far more to that than scripture gives us. We've also got to use empirical research into the effect of rape on victims. But my point is that scripture properly understood should function authoritatively within that theory. Now, look, what I've just done is I've gone deep into one field. And some of you just totally glazed over. You've got to do that in your field. You've got to follow the Christ clue in business, in justice, in homemaking. In prosthetics making, in carpentry, every
every sphere is filled with genuine knowledge and idolatry. And I don't know your sphere well enough. My job as a pastor is to sound the kingdom note. Preach sermons like this so that Ed goes into finance and he shines the light of Christ. He doesn't look to the Bible to tell him how to work in the stock market, but he looks through Christ at all of the theories of economics. I have a whole section here on economics, but Ed's staring me with a stink eye right now, so I think I'm going to... I'll just write it in a letter and email it to him or something. What I'm trying to say is that relating the gospel to, to any field of knowledge is not merely a matter of putting religious icing on the cake. Those who confess the name of Christ must do the hard, rigorous work of following Christ into their area. We've got to recognize the ways in which our knowledge has been shaped by the false gods of our culture. And let me tell you what the primary false gods of our culture are. Economic utility, consumerism, technology, and multiculturalism. These are the false gods of our society. Too often, the purpose of knowledge, the purpose of learning, because it's enslaved to these false gods, becomes merely to give you useful information. How many of our colleges, their goal is to provide their students with marketable skills? And that's where we stop. Skills that enable you to compete and survive in the jungle of the global marketplace. According to this view of knowledge, the growth of our worldwide population, the shrinking of goods, the limited amount of goods, and the unforgiving severity of a competitive market all demand that you find your advantage. And so we've been socialized into looking at knowledge as the thing that gives us an advantage. That's way off base. It gives you an advantage over your competitive peers and education can give you a way... Of getting a leg up. Our society has bought into the story of progress through science and technology. And it's fundamentally at odds with the Christian story. The purpose of knowledge is to love. And we gain it through humility and following the Christ clue. Let's pray.